Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and all that you do through us. We, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who guides us and empowers us and leads us along. And we uh, pray today as we continue to make our way through Luke that you'll give us wisdom and insight into the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus as it lays the foundation for everything that we are and do as his followers. So we um, give our time to you. We give ourselves to you. Pray for all those who are here today and those who aren't here. Uh, We've got a lot that are sick in our classes and some out traveling. We just pray that you'd bless them all. And uh, bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, y'all. Last week, I think we left off in chapter 6 of Luke. In your notes, we are down on page 16. There, we're going uh, to be getting into what's called the Sermon on the Plain here. And um, before we get there, there's just a, a little bit that we didn't look at last week. I'm going to pick up in Luke 6, 17. Um, just, just by way of review, what, what we've had so far, um, and I'm just going to scan through this to set the context, and then, um, and then we'll get into what we're getting into today. In chapter 4, we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is um, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Uh, we looked at that. He comes through. As you know, he does not succumb to the temptations. And so um, there from Luke's narrative, he then goes in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And that's where he begins his ministry. Um, Luke 4, he, he reads from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is, on, uh, is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We looked at that. And then, he, then Jesus begins his healing. He heals a man with a demon. Uh, he heals Simon's mother-in-law. He heals many people with various diseases and sicknesses. He goes on, preaches in the synagogues. Uh, chapter 5, he calls the first disciple, Simon. Uh, Simon Peter, James, and John. Uh, then he cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic. He calls a Levi. Um, and then last week, we, we kind of got toward the end here, and he has this teaching at the end of chapter 5 about you can't sew an old piece of a garment to a new garment. I mean, yeah, a new piece of a garment to an old garment, and you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Both things will be torn up. And in the sense, what that is, is saying is that what he's coming to do is something entirely new. And it's not going to fit into the old ways of doing things. We've got to have a whole new container for him. And that's really important because what we're going to get into in chapter 6 is one of his first extended uh, sermons. Now, he's been teaching up to this point, uh, preaching and healing, but chapter 6 gives us one of his first really uh, long sermons, so to speak. Uh, So in chapter 6 then, last week we looked at him uh, making the proclamation that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, showing his authority over religious issues, just like he showed his authority over uh, sickness, his authority over the demons, the various ways that he just showed his authority, his authority to forgive sins that we looked at. So uh, as he's established his authority in all these healings and things that he's done in chapter 6, where we left off last week, he, out of his disciples, out of his many disciples, he has set apart 12 that he's going to call the apostles or that he does call the apostles. And you have those listed in uh, verses 12 through 16 in chapter 6 there. 
And, and I'm not going to read through the names. Y'all all know them. Um, if, if, if you look that up, it is very interesting that the names of the disciples are all uh, pretty much grouped together in the same way uh, in all of the Gospels. You have, you have uh, three sections of disciples with um, three key people at the beginning of all of those. And so uh, I'm, I'm not going to go into that. It really doesn't help us understand anything any better. But it is interesting that, that they're grouped very similarly in all of the, the uh, gospel writers. And, of course, uh, last always, well, let me say, the list begins with Simon, Peter. As he, you know, Peter kind of becomes chief among the disciples in a sense. And the last one is always Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays him. And there's always some mention about, you know, Judas is the traitor. He's the one who betrays Jesus. So after he names the, the disciples, it goes on, verse 17, and that's where we'll pick up today. In your notes on page 16, uh, we're, de- we're right in the middle of the page uh, in your outline 2.3, where Jesus is going to heal and he's going to give the Sermon on the Plain. So verse 17, it says, and he came down with them, that is with the, um, with the, with the apostles that he's chosen now, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So healing and the cleansing from the unclean spirits. Verse 19, a really interesting statement. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. We're going to have another episode where it's really, you know, uh, pointed where a lady comes up and touches. You know, Jesus is in a crowd and a lady comes up and touches him, and Jesus is like, who touched me? And this is what, <laughs> probably dozens of people touching him, right? But the interesting thing is, is that he knew something had happened. That power, he says, I felt power come out from me when she, when she touched me. So we'll, we'll come back and talk about that uh, a little bit later. But here, you know, it's just repeating that, repeating that theme that we've seen, that Jesus has been given power to heal uh, and that is always said in the context of his teaching and preaching. And that takes us to this sermon he has. This, notice in verse 17, this is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain because it says that he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now, there is endless debate and nobody solved this problem yet as to whether this is the same sermon that's called the Sermon on the, on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, now, I'm not going to go into all that. My view is this is not the same thing, that this is something different. It's the, the, the tone of this one is different. There, there is uh, some things that are included in Luke's version of this that are not in Matthew's version, vice versa. But uh, if you look at Luke, uh, he, he takes kind of the heart of this sermon uh, that is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in some sense. Uh, and you have that here in chapter 6. But then many of the other things that are in the Sermon on the Mount are divided up and put in other places in Luke. And so what I think Luke is doing here is he's given us another occasion where Jesus preached a very similar message. And if, if you think about it, right, Jesus is traveling around and preaching and teaching. He's traveling around and, he's, and it's, it's said over and over again, we've already heard it a couple of times, that he's out proclaiming the kingdom to the people, Right. And so if you think about this, as he goes, he's not going to be teaching something new every time. 
Right? Because his central message is to draw people to this new way of doing things that he's establishing here. So it's, it's my view that there's, you know, Jesus probably taught multiple versions of these sermons. Sermon on the Mount, as we know, is kind of one of his chief sermons where everything is gathered together in one place. And it's also the one that if you get to the end of that sermon and you're not at the point of saying, oh, Lord, we're in trouble. How am I ever going to get into the kingdom of heaven? Right. Then you're not hearing what he says, because that's exactly where he wants to get them. Right. All good preaching. Right. This is this is the difference in teaching and preaching. Right. Teaching is for edifying. Preaching is to get people to say, oh, heck, what do we do now? Right. That's what preaching does. Preaching draws us to this point of I'm in real trouble without the mercy and grace of the Lord. And so that that's what Jesus is going to do here. And um, so as as he begins to teach here. This, it's, it's very clear, right? He's already set apart the 12. He's got all these disciples following him. So his, his movement has gained some real steam. And so as all these people are gathered, right? The great crowds are with him here. Great crowd of his disciples. Great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. The seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So these are not just Galileans. These people have literally come from all over the place. They've heard what Jesus is doing. Now they're gathered together here. And as they're gathered together, he's going to tell them what his movement, what his kingdom is going to be like. And um, we start that in verse 20. Now, I'm going to do something really weird today. You all might get mad at me, but bear with me. I promise this will work out. We're going to just read this sermon together, and I'm going to hardly make any comment on it whatsoever. And the reason is, I, I, I think we need to just let this thing punch the way it punches. And so I just want you to hear this as just one continuous sermon. And after we've, after we've heard this whole thing, I'll go back and make a couple of comments on it. But I'm just going to let this thing, let, the, let, let you brew on this thing. And you might want to go back and read it a couple of times this week. Because what he's defining here for us is, these are the kind of people that I'm trying to shape you all into. And boy, this thing is rough. If you haven't read this in a while, this one is... Wow, here we go, right? So, so verse 20, uh, it says, Now he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Jesus, that hurts. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you you when, when... all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Whoa. Verse 27, now y'all buckle up. Here we go. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. 
And as you wish that others would do to you, you do so to them. But if you love those who love you, what what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, now look at this, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye out, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. Instead, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You need to circle verse 45 there. We'll we'll come back to that one a couple more times. And then finally, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And that's the end of the sermon there. Now remember, if you know, the Sermon on the Mount is much longer than this. This is only about a third as long. But man, how many of you guys have read that? Was there something in it that made you really uncomfortable? Right. All of it. Right. Yeah. Every bit of it should have caused a problem somewhere. Right. Now, just just a couple of things. Again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this. A lot of this is going to be worked out as we go through Luke. But if you notice, um, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with these blesseds. Blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So he, he gives blesseds there. And uh, all of that comes to a, to an apex in verse 22. And this is, this is really going to be one of the things that moves forward, both in the Gospel of Luke and also in Acts, 
where he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. See that? Not just that they do that, but that they do that because of our association with the Son of Man, with Jesus, right? Now, y'all hold on to that idea. That's gonna, we're going to carry that forward. This sermon is different because he pronounces these woes. And I'm not even going to read through those again. They hurt too bad, right? <laughs> uh, but woe to you who are rich. Right? That's every one of us in this room. Right? Y'all know that we are the richest people that have ever existed on planet Earth, without a doubt, even close. So this, this thing is meant to wake us up. Right. And, and here, as we're going to as, as we go through the gospel and as we go through Acts, we're going to find out that having money is not the issue. It's loving that money more than God or more than something else. Jesus is going to give us a whole series of teaching on what that means. Right. Uh, and so the, the, the ideas there that, that he's given in verses 24 through 26, uh, th- this is all about people who. Uh, cling to those things, right? Wealth and food and their possessions. Uh, and then he comes to verse at the end there in 26. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. <laughs> now, again, this is part of Jesus' new way. Now, and I, and, I, and I want you to remember that Jesus is not speaking to our culture in 2022. Right? He is speaking in the first century to Israel to a culture that has largely been defined by the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. And everything that they've been taught or that they have taught has been wrong. It's led people in the wrong direction. And also, Jesus is, is, starting, to, is starting to show something that we've already had alluded to in the gospel. And it, it smacks against the, against the wisdom teaching that was prevalent in this day. And, and we even looked at some of it. Uh, when we were doing the wisdom study and Proverbs and Job and all the rest. And it's this common teaching that, well, if you're well off and you're rich and you have a lot of stuff, it's because you've been righteous and God has blessed you. Right? Jesus turns all that up on its head. Right? By saying, no, it's not the rich you're going to get into heaven. It's the poor. And everybody would be like, well, wait a minute. I thought the poor were poor because they did everything wrong. Right? They're, they're unrighteous, and that's why they are the way they are. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Those are the people who are going to get into the kingdom ahead of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember very early on, Jesus says, unless, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you, you, you're not going to get into the kingdom. And right there, everybody in that crowd would think, well, then nobody's getting into the kingdom, right? Because that's the exact place that Jesus wants to take us to. He, he's trying to overturn our assumptions. Um, the, next, the, the, the next episode is where he talks about love. I mean, my goodness, y'all. You read that thing on love, and that is, that is the heart of Jesus' teaching right there, right? Uh, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Oh, man, What? Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them, right? The great golden rule, golden commandment, as we say. And, and then he goes into all this, you know, what benefit is it to you? Uh, by the way, I'm going I'm to give you a hand on this a little bit later. In verse 32, there are a lot of words in Luke that come from the root, uh, the root that um, part of the root is translated as grace, are things that are gracious. It's, it's really interesting. The, the root in Greek that we, that we translate joy 
grace, uh, rejoicing, uh, giving, thankfulness. All those words come from a similar root, right? Which makes us think all those things are related in some way. And so here, the idea of benefit, right? What, and if I translate it more literally, what grace is that to you? What, what good thing is that to you? Even the sinners do that. <laughs> love those who love them. You've got to be more than that, right? That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. And then at the end there, <clears throat> man, verse 35, this is, this is one of the most profound statements, uh, I think, in this early part of Luke, maybe even in the whole Bible. Uh, verse 35, he says, but love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return. Oh, man. For your reward will be great. And, and in doing those things, you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If, if, if you go look at this uh, in Matthew, he says something a little bit different. And when he's explaining this idea, he says, For the Lord causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? But here the words are different. Right? He says that the Most High, the Father, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If, if you go look in Romans 1, these are the first two things that Paul mentions about people who have rejected the truth of God. And have suppressed the truth. They have become ungodly. And they have, first of all, they have become ungrateful. And because they're ungrateful, they become evil. Right? Who is he talking about? These are the Lord's primary enemies, seemingly. And what is he to them? He's kind. Wow. Let that sink into your mind for just a minute. Right? The people that hate God the most on planet Earth right now take their next breath by the Lord's allowance. And his kindness, right? And, and then we think of all those passages that come later. For the Lord is not slow about his return, right? But he desires that all should be saved and come to repentance, right? The patience of the Lord God. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And oh yeah, by the, by the way, y'all, that's where we all start. Every one of us, we start. We are the, we are the ungrateful. We are the evil, right? And God was merciful and gracious, and that's what brought us to himself. And then that's what he says. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. The modern church has forgotten this message altogether. Or, worse than that, we have suppressed it and we've rejected it. We have, we have turned to the ways of the world, and we crave power and influence and power over our enemies so that we can subdue them, maybe take them out, but definitely not love them. Right. Just 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 listen to what's going on. I am. A, I, I, I have when the whole covid thing broke out on Facebook, I heard I saw people who labeled themselves as Christians making wishes that other people would die because of their political stances, because of their view of covid and whatnot. Let me let, let me wake you up. That person is not a follower of Jesus. And that mindset, until it is changed, excludes them from the kingdom, period. No matter how much you say you believe Jesus, like Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you to do? Let me tell you what you're like. You're like the man who builds his house on the sand, and when the flood comes, he gets washed away, right? Man, could y'all imagine being in Jesus' church? Oh, Lord. Boy, you, you leave this thing and you think, oh, man, we got trouble. Now, let me just say, part of what Jesus is trying to get his people to do then and now is to get us to this point to where, to where we realize 
What he's calling us to do, we can't do in and of ourselves. There's no way I can do it because everything in me wants, wants to hate my enemy. You know, just you can ask my wife on the drive over here. Uh, anybody that's on the road is my enemy, and I don't like any of y'all. I, I, I'd, I'd shoot half of you if I can, right? It's a struggle. Ugh, struggle to love your enemies, right? Uh, the, the next section, he talks about not judging people, right? And, and Jesus gave us this because he knew in 2022 we would be neck deep in cancel culture, right? And basically what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, if, if, if you want to cancel somebody, just realize at some point somebody's going to cancel you. That's, that's the way the world works. You start rejecting everybody for what they've said and what they've done without any source of forgiveness and mercy. It's going to happen to you. It's, going to, it's coming down the pike, right? And so he warns us about judging. Listen, don't judge unless, unless you want to be judged. Uh, forgive, right? Don't, don't condemn. Uh, again, be merciful like your heavenly Father is merciful. Verses 39 through uh, 42, really famous. You know, you're, you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye, but <laughs> you got a big old log, <laughs> tree sticking out of yours. Get that one out first, right? Uh, in, this, in this whole sermon, the, 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 the main thrust of it is, um, it seems to me, before you worry about anybody else, you need to take care of your own house, Right? You need to worry about what's going on with you before you start thinking about what's happening with other people. You need to get your house in order before you're going to be ready to talk to anybody else. And then, and then you know, he's that great statement in verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. See, this is what the, the 12 apostles are not, they don't have their mind around it yet. The disciples that are following Jesus. Jesus is not just there to heal and, and raise people from the dead, as we're going to see, and preach and do these things. He is there to create a whole new kind of people, right? Jesus is the first. He is the prototype of a whole new type of humanity. A humanity that, that as he says here, they want to be like their Father in heaven, the Most High, right? Which is a whole new type of person that we hadn't had yet, at least as far as the Bible goes, Right? And we haven't had an example like Jesus, right? All the way through the Old Testament, Adam comes, he fails, right? Noah comes, he fails. Abraham comes, he fails. Isaac comes, he fails. Jacob comes, he fails, right? Are, are we getting the idea? Right? The kings come, Saul comes, he fails. David comes, he fails, right? The sons of David, don't even get us started on them. Whatever the step is beyond failure, that's where they are, right? The ones who are supposed to bring the kingdom, bring it to utter ruin, right? The prophets come, they all fail, right? Until Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he is the first human being that we've ever had in existence that can say, listen, you need to do what I'm doing because I'm giving for you to do what the Most High would have you do. I'm showing you what the one true God looks like in human flesh, and I want you to follow me. The things I do, I want you to do, right? Oh, Lord have mercy. Wow. Look, Jesus, how can we do that? Uh, hang on a little bit. Then he, gives, then he gives verse 43, right? Great, no good tree bears uh, bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree uh, bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Uh, you remember earlier at the baptism of John, John had warned the people to live a life that, was, uh, that, that bore fruit, in keeping with repentance. That if, if you're really living a life where you're rethinking 
the way you think about the kingdom and God and everything that he's doing here, then it's going to bear fruit in your life. Your life is going to look different, right? Uh, You're just, you're good. You, You don't use your power to extort other people and whatnot, as he gave that. Here, Jesus is doing the same thing. Uh, this, this is kind of John's sermons amped up uh, quite a bit. But Jesus tells us, uh, each tree will be known by its fruit, right? Uh, and then verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces a good, and the evil person out of his treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Right? And there's an inherent question there. What if my heart's evil? Well, what Jesus is doing right now is giving us just a diagnostic tool, right? He hasn't given us the healing for this yet, right? But it's simply this. Are the evil things coming out of your mouth? Do you speak curses against your enemy, right? Do you condemn? Do you judge others? That's evil. And all that reveals is the corruption that's going on in your heart, right? You see how he's trying to get people awake right here? Oh, boy. What have we gotten into? This is Jesus. Aren't you supposed to be kicking out the Romans and right? Don't we need to like take some military action? I mean, isn't the problem the Romans? I mean, isn't it the isn't it the political leaders? Right, boy. If we could just kick them people out of Washington and get a whole new phrase. I mean, couldn't we get something going on here? Couldn't bring the kingdom in? Jesus, is like, no. I need people whose hearts have been made perfect toward the Lord God. I need people who are desiring to be like their most high, the most high, their father, right? And that's, that's what he's trying to wake, us, wake them and us to. And then he says, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And as y'all know, the, the, <laughs> the 12 apostles and the key disciples are going to be the key examples of this. Jesus will tell them to do something and they'll do something the exact opposite. And, and that goes on even in the book of Acts. And so we'll trace that through, right? Um, the, the, thing, the, the thing that I love about Luke and Acts is, is that, uh, well, first of all, the, the primary example is it shows us the growth of Peter through those books, right? And, and, and we realize that spiritual growth takes a long time. It, it takes years, right? You can't hear the truth and be spiritually mature tomorrow because the Lord has a lot of work to do, right? It's kind of like taking your car into the shop. You think your battery's gone dead, and the mechanic comes out and says, no, I got bad news. You need a whole new engine. (laughs) We got a lot of work to do. Oh, and by the way, the transmission's messed up. Probably new tires. And you think, well, I need a whole new car. And he's like, yeah, basically that's what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is doing. You're going to have to have a total makeover, right? Everything's going to be renewed. Uh, but he, but he, he, he's got to show them what this thing looks like first, right? And so he, he ends there talking about anybody who listens to his word and does them, right? Uh, and that's really important, verse 47. Uh, who hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Now, I'm going to say something, and I'm, uh, oh, Lord, I, I just, I hate to even say this because you're going to, somebody might want to throw something at me, but just let me say it, and then I'm going to explain it as we go along. All right. As you read through Luke and Acts, there, 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 there's really not such an idea as simply believing facts about Jesus and finding salvation. That is not in there. And I would even go so far as to say that's not in the Bible anywhere. Right. If, if, if it were only about believing facts and information, well, then the devil himself would be saved. Right. Uh, the devil has perfectly good theology. 
right? In fact, I, I kind of wish he would write a theology book. It'd be fantastic, right? Because it would be all the right stuff. It would just be given in the wrong motives. He knows the truth, right? These demons, as they've come out, I don't know if y'all picked up on this yet. As you're reading through Luke, the people who know who Jesus is first are the demons. We know who you are. You're the Son of God. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. John the Baptist is going to say, "Who, Jesus, who are you? Are you the one that we were expecting or should we be looking for somebody else? Peter and the other disciples. It's going to take them a long time to figure out, oh, wow, who, who is this man? The, the crowds. Is, is he a prophet? Is he a new, who, who is he? That's what we're about to get into in this next chapter here. Right? People are trying to figure out. The demons know. But here, here, here's the difference. The people who have faith in Jesus, it's not just that they know facts and information about him. They have faith in the sense of they are trusting him. What he says right here. We call him Lord and we do what he says to do. I really believe that Jesus is deadly serious in what he says in the sermon. He is not just saying this so it's great and boy, those words sound fantastic. He really expects us to do those things, right? As we follow him, he expects us to do that. And, and I, I can say that for surety because of where this whole thing is headed, right? Jesus is going to wind up on the cross, at the end of his ministry. And his cross, right, what he does on the cross is to do what? It's to redeem his enemies. Right, Paul in Romans 5. For at the right time Christ died for the ungodly while we were his enemies. Right? Not for his friends, for his enemies. And that's what makes the cross so powerful. Right now, now through that cross, we do become friends and all the other things. But here, Jesus gives us the ultimate example of what all this looks like. He goes so far as to give his life, right? And he's going to expect his disciples to do the same in the first century and in 2022, right? <laughs> Old man alive. We have been, you know, every time I read this sermon, y'all, this is going to sound awful. But some of my worst enemies have been people that I've been at church with. You know, you know what I'm talking about? I've had people that wanted to kill me before. I, I was at a, in a leadership meeting years ago at a church, and one of the leaders of the church told me, boy, if you bring up the Bible one more time, me and you're going to have it out. I'm like, well, you, let's go, because I'm going to bring up the Bible again. And we're going to have it out. And I was a little bit spiritually immature at this point. You know? I told him, brother, we'll, we'll have it up out right now. We'll go out in the front yard, and I will beat you in a way that your grandchildren will tell one another about, you know. He and I resolved all that, right? But but, but the point is this. Jesus is deadly serious about these things. Because it's it's not just the way we love one another, but the way we love our enemies that identifies us as his disciples, right? We're we're doing the things that none of the rest of the world is doing, right? You see how many times he said, even the Gentiles do that. The pagans. Even the pagans do that. Even the pagans do that. I was in a discussion not too long ago with somebody who was talking about uh, giving money. And he was like, well, I don't want to give anything to somebody that might waste it or use it inappropriately. And I'm like, well, that's not what Jesus would have you do. He was like, what? Took him to this. Look what Jesus says there. Lend to those and don't expect anything in return. Give freely, right? That's, That's the way our Father God. Father God gives graciously to people who will spit in his face. It's not up to us to figure out what people are going to do with that. They'll have to answer for that when they stand before the Lord God on the day of judgment. Right now, you and I as followers of Jesus, we are, we are called to be extravagantly generous. 
If somebody asks <laughs> ask you for your top coat, give them your underwear as well. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying there. That's how far you go. Right? Uh, man. Yeah, Ann. When I read all this, I think about you about 79. Yeah. When I first started teaching, somebody gave me a great a principle. Uh, they said, the first day you've got to set the bar really high and you've got to be super strict. And then from that point forward, you can be lenient. But if you start lenient, they'll take, they'll take advantage of you all the way through, right? What I think Jesus is doing here is he's setting the bar really high to know, to give us the goal that we're shooting for, right? Uh, you know, in, in fact, in, uh, in the Matthew account, he says, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? And, and we hear that and we think, oh, Lord, you know, our first reaction should be, how? How can I do that, Right? And so he sets that bar really high because that's what we're shooting for, right? Even Paul in his letters makes it very clear that, (laughs) if I could summarize it this way, you know, Romans 8, God has been working everything that has ever existed that will ever be so that you and I can be conformed in the image of Christ, so that we can become like Christ, right? So that bar is set really high. And now what he's going to do is spend time to work out, okay, so how do we... How are we ever going to get there? And, and, and as you all know, uh, the disciples are not going to get there in Luke. They're not going to get there by the cross. They're not going to get there by the resurrection. They're only going to get there when? After the Holy Spirit comes, right? And so uh, part, of this, part of this whole thing is, is to show that the Holy Spirit, as He comes... He's doing things that we can't do in and of ourselves, right? John the Baptist said, when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? So we know that Holy Spirit's coming. But also, that, the Jeremiah reference is really significant. You know, I have people quote that all the time. Uh, Jeremiah, you know, the heart, the, the human heart is dis- desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? Now, that's in Jeremiah 17. And everybody leaves the last part out of Jeremiah that gives us the remedy for that. In the new covenant. When the new covenant comes, he says, in that day, I'm going to give my people what? A new heart and a new spirit that they may know, right? That's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. So, so as, you know, as we read this, yeah, we think, how in the world am I ever going to do this? But this is what the Holy Spirit is here to do in and through us, right? And, and, and the really incredible thing is, is that he doesn't force us into this. Right. He, he, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to scream and yell when he descends on Jesus. He comes like a dove. Right. He's, he's not stirring up any. I mean, a dove flies in such a way that you can barely hear the thing. Right. It's not like an owl when an owl flies over and you know something bad is about to happen. Right. Or a hawk or something like that. He comes. He, right, he, he doesn't scream. He doesn't yell. And, and, and what he's doing is he's working to get us to the place where we want to do these things willingly. Right. And, and until we're at that place, then we're not really tra- we're not fully transformed, right? And, and and it's going to take Luke and Acts to work all that out. So it's high standard right here, and now we've got to have a bunch of failure, <laughs> right, through the disciples and through the others until we see how it finally comes to work out, right? Peter's going to have a real problem with this, right? Uh, in fact, Luke Luke records that on the night Jesus is betrayed, you remember Peter pulls out his sword. Cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, right? Uh, Peter's still ready to fight. He's not loving his enemies yet, right? Now, I don't know. Now, I could be wrong, but I would suggest that cutting off somebody's ear does not (laughs) communicate love of your enemy, right? (laughs) I could be wrong. 
I don't think so. So even Peter's going to have to go through that uh, development. And, and it's really interesting that, that the lights don't come on for him until he's in Cornelius' house, the centurion. Cornelius the centurion. And that's when it's like, oh, I see. Okay, I, now I got what we're doing. Right now I see Jesus. God does not play favorites with anybody. In fact, Jesus has come to save everybody, right? And we're a part of that. So it's going to take him time to learn and grow, you know. Uh, uh, spiritual development is a lifelong process. But my big problem, kind of what Beverly was alluding to, we're not, we're, we, don't, we don't keep these things before our people. We don't keep the goal in front of our people. We as followers of Jesus, we are not here to affect political change. And let me tell you why. Because political change does nothing in the eternal scheme of things, right? Augustus Caesar, he changed the world. You know nothing about his political policies. Right? Tiberius Caesar changed the world. You know nothing about his political policies. And the empires that they developed, and they lasted for thousand and a half years, they're gone today. Sand. Dust. Right? Just like the United States will be if the Lord doesn't return first. Our, our country is part of the world that's passing away. We're not here to affect political change. And anybody that places their hopes in the political system or any politician, that's the work of Antichrist. That's the work to keep us distracted, right? What are we here to do? Well, we're not political change. We're not even here to affect social change. That's not our job. What is our job? Our job is to proclaim the truth to affect spiritual change. The change of hearts and minds to be completely focused on Jesus. I mean, imagine if we lived in a society where if, if <laughs> and we can't get our mind around it, if people practiced exactly what Jesus taught you. Love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Lend to everybody. Don't expect anything in return. If they ask for your clothes, uh, and, and I love, I didn't mention this, but he says, uh, give to those who beg from you. Right, people who are pleading, "Hey, I need some help." Jesus says, "Give to them freely. Don't expect anything else." Right? Imagine, just imagine if we lived that way. Nobody's judging anybody, right? In fact, I am. I am trying to work out my own problems so I can see clearly to help you with your problems. That's what it's all about, right? I need to get myself healthy so I can help you. What Jesus saying there about the log and the speck? I don't know about y'all. I'd like to live somewhere like that. Be great, right? I had a friend, <laughs> had a friend years ago who said, "You know, I mean, if everybody's serving anybody, everybody else, how is anybody ever going to get ahead?" I'm like, "That's the point." <laughs> right? In the kingdom, nobody's supposed to get ahead, right? And in fact, if you're in a place where everybody has what they need, you don't need to have everybody getting ahead, right? Uh, See, Jesus is turning everything upside down. I mean, even today, we, we struggle with it. Um, absolutely. Now, y'all, we're going we're to see the application of that as we go on. Uh, I want to jump on into uh, chapter 7, and I, I want to I show you how this links together with a couple of things that happen after this. So chapter 7, you get, again, one of the really famous, um, one of the famous episodes in Jesus' ministry. This is where he heals a centurion's servant. And uh, verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. Uh, so uh, whenever Luke says things like that, to me it's clear that he's saying that, listen, I've just given you a little snippet 
of, of the types of things that Jesus was saying. You know, he, he taught a lot more than this. But this is the heart of it. This is, this is what's going on. Um, so a, after he finished it, he entered Capernaum. And as you all know, this is kind of his headquarters up around the Sea of Galilee. And it says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Um, the, the, the word there, highly valued, probably doesn't mean that value in the sense of, you know, this, this, this person does a lot for me. I don't want him to die. It's like this servant is beloved by the centurion, right? Uh, this servant is somebody that is, he, he, he values highly for who he is and whatnot. And it says, uh, verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders. Uh, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Uh, verse 4, that he is worthy. Right? That's Okay, here, that, this is where that whole story is going to hinge. He is worthy for you to come and heal his servant. Uh, this, uh, this, this centurion, uh, there's a lot of debate over whether or not he's a proselyte or exactly how he relates. He's, he's clearly a Gentile. Uh, we, we find that out here in uh, the way they say that there. He loves our nation, right? He's not part of their nation. Uh, and also Jesus is going to make the point in just a second that this is clearly a Gentile. This is not a Jewish person that he's talking about here. But this is somebody who, who loves the Jewish people, and he's even built their synagogue in their town for them. In verse 6, so Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. <laughs> right, look at that. But simply say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So here the centurion, notice, the Jewish elders say of the centurion, he's worthy to have you do this for him. But the centurion says, no, I'm not worthy to do it. Now, there is a thread that, we've, that we picked up very early on. Uh, that it starts with Zechariah in the temple, right? And as Gabriel comes to him, Ze- you know, Zechariah thinks he's somebody and questions Gabriel and gets in trouble. In the very next episode, we have Mary come, and uh, Gabriel gives her the message that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And as she sings her hymn, she says, he has taken note of my lowly estate uh, there. But the, the Greek word, I think, is, um, the Greek word is, is, it's not just her lowly state. That, that word in other contexts is used of humiliation. Right. It's a really humble place to be in. Right. Her she's lowest of the low. Right. I am a woman, teenager living out here in the backwaters. Nobody pays any attention to me except the Lord God. Right. Lowly estate. Right. Uh, humility. I would say it that way. Then uh, you, you come forward and we get Peter. Right. And what does Peter exercise? Lord, how do you, I'm a sinful man. You don't even need to be in the same boat as I am, right? Humility. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. John the Baptist, there's one coming after me who's greater. I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs on his sandals, right? And now here's this centurion. What does he say? Lord, I I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. See that? In fact, verse 7, I did not even presume to come to you. 
I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. That's why he sends the Jewish elders. He, don't think, he doesn't think he's worthy to make this request in and of himself. He's not Jewish. Jesus is not his Messiah. It's not his healer. It's not his prophet, whoever this may be, right? So he doesn't feel like he's worthy. And then notice how Jesus responds to him. I love this episode because it focuses on what the centurion does and says and not on the healing. This story is not about Jesus. It's about the centurion, right? And that's what Jesus focuses on. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Um, In the Gospels, it's only mentioned twice that Jesus marvels at something. The first one is in Mark, uh, in the same episode where he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and preaches, and he marvels at their unbelief. And the second one is here. He marvels at the way the centurion responds to him. And and it's also interesting because that same word, that's the word that's been used about Jesus a couple of times. He'll perform a miracle and the people marvel at him. They marvel at his godliness. They marvel at him, right? So this has been used of Jesus. Now he's using it of this Gentile centurion, right? In other words, this centurion has blown Jesus' mind. He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed, he said to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Right, so here we go. This is the first example of we have somebody who's building his foundation on the words of Jesus. Right, you, you follow what I'm saying there? And this is not even an Israelite. This is a Gentile centurion. This is, somebody from a, this is a pagan from among the nations, right? And that's, get, again, getting us ready for what we're doing in, in Luke and then in Acts. The gospel, the good news and salvation. It's not just for Israel. It's for all people. It's for all flesh. And so this, this Gentile centurion becomes a great example of that. Um, something, something that's really fascinating in this, if you notice what he says there, uh, it, it's subtle and, and we might miss it. He, he bases everything that he says on two ideas. Number one is the idea of authority. Right? He's saying, Jesus, I know you have authority. Now, how the heck would he know that? Now, again, all these episodes that we've seen leading up to this, Jesus has authority over the unclean spirits. He has authority to forgive sins. He's got authority to cleanse the lepers and the blind and all that. He's already established that. And I think that this centurion has picked up on it. And he's thinking, wow, this guy really works with authority, right? He speaks, he touches, he does these things and it happens. But what he focuses on is simply saying the word, right? He, he says, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. You simply need to speak the word <laughs> and it will be so, right? Now think about that for a minute. Right? In almost every episode we've had so far, Jesus will touch somebody or they'll bring the people to him so that Jesus can touch them or speak. This centurion says, all he has to, he has the authority and the power that all he has to do is speak the word and it'll be so, right? And Jesus does it. Right. He, first of all, he praises the man for his faith, but by the time they get back, the guy's been healed. There, there's, there's also probably something going on with that. I think this is going to tie in later because this, this establishes a pattern that Jesus exercises his, his authority through his speech even when he's not physically present. Right, Even when he's not physically present with his disciples, he still exercises his authority through what he says. And that's going to be critical in the book of Acts. Because where is Jesus going to be? He's going to be in heaven, not with the disciples anymore. And what are they going to be doing? They're going to be following the commands of Jesus through the works of the Holy Spirit. 
as he guides and as he teaches. Now, Luke doesn't develop this, but if you remember in, the, in John, Jesus uh, teaches on the Holy Spirit, and he says uh, that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that he will bring to remembrance everything that I taught you, so that you might know what to do, right? So, uh, and he says, uh, just, just as I say, so the, will the Holy Spirit communicate, will, the, will communicate these things to you. So here, the centurion understands. All Jesus has to do is speak, <laughs> and it happens. I, and, and think about all the Old Testament connections with that, right? In the beginning, Genesis 1, how does the Lord create? He speaks, and it's so. Let there be light, and there was light. Uh, so here, the same thing going on. Uh, so there, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus praises the centurion, and he becomes the first example uh, of people who show what faith really looks like, right? Um, he is trusting Jesus to be able to do exactly what he says he's going to do. And that's, that's going to take root in these next stories here. Now, we're right at time. I'm not going to get into the next one. In the next, let me just show you where we're headed here. Uh, we'll pick up in 7-11 next week. Um, but in that next story, you get, the, you get the raising of the widow's son at Nain. And here, this is the first time we have Jesus raising somebody from the dead. <clears throat> so... Um, he shows that he has authority over death, <laughs> right? Even death has to obey the Lord Jesus. Uh, uh, life, maybe a better way to say it. But at the end of that, at the end in verse 16, it says the people glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. That starts to raise the question, who is Jesus? Is he just the great prophet? Or is he somebody else? John comes on in verse 18 there, 718. John's in prison. And he sends his disciples to go to Jesus and say, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So even John's having his doubts. Jesus, is this it? Or is there somebody else coming? I thought you were going to be doing something else here. And then Jesus gives a long, uh, a long treatment about John the Baptist and who he is. And how he fit into his ministry. That, that John is a, the last of the great prophets. Um, and then at the end, he, um, he kind of, uh, he, he, he chides the uh, people for, and it, particularly it seems that he's focused on the, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers here. Because he says, listen, John the Baptist came and he didn't do what y'all wanted him to do. And y'all said he uh, has a demon. Uh, I came and I haven't done what y'all wanted me to do. And y'all say that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Nothing we do is going to please y'all. You know, uh, there's nothing we can do because y'all are in line with the truth. Um, and so he, he, again, it sets up this controversy that, um, that's going to go on throughout the end of Luke. Then again, we've got these, uh, before Jesus starts to teach again, he's going to heal, uh, forgive a sinful woman at a Pharisee's house. And then he's going to start teaching his parables starting in chapter 8. So you can kind of see how, how this is developing and laying the foundation where Jesus preaches and he heals, preaches and he heals. And uh, as he heals, he shows his authority over all these different elements to, to prove that his teaching is in line with the truth, that it's true, right? And so we'll, we'll, we'll see those amplified as we go along through there. All right, y'all, let me uh, pray for us and we will, um, we will turn loose here. Father, we, we thank you for your, uh, the, the goodness uh, of yourself and of your Son and of the Holy Spirit who uh, you, you have given us your blessings, you have given us your word. And I think about just thinking about Jesus and the disciples. They didn't have 
a Bible they could carry around in their pocket or on a phone and open it up anytime they wanted to do uh, and read it. And, and we have that blessing. We can, we can literally open your word anytime we want to. We've got endless resources, not just to read it, but to help us understand what's actually there. It's been translated out of its original languages into English, into our mother tongue, so we can read it without difficulty. Uh, and yet we, we are in a, a, amongst a, a crooked and dark generation that just absolutely does not care what your word says. And it grieves me to be in a time where that's true, even amongst the institutions that call on your name, um, our seminaries and, and even our training institutions, uh, by and large, have rejected your word for man-made traditions and principles. And so, Lord, um, we pray that as we get closer and closer to the times of fulfillment, that you will work in and through us to be lights uh, to be salt and to be people who communicate your goodness and your and your your mercy and your love and your grace to a world that desperately needs it. And through our lives, we can be part of the motivation and the catalyst to push them to you and to push them to your truth uh, and reality uh, as it is. So, Father, help us in all the ways that we need help. We we're all in the midst of our growing. Many of us have, all of us have, a ways to go until we're conformed to the image of Jesus. But we know that's the goal, and we want to pursue that goal. And we want to uh, be people who, in our humility um, and in our total self-awareness, know that we can't make any progress without absolute and utter dependence on you. And so we ask all these things and give you all praise for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.